have less than 15 minutes left. We want to do just a couple obituaries, starting with Hugo Chavez, president of Venezuela. He was quite a guy. His legacy, of course, is a bit contested. El Nacional, Venezuela's El Nacional, said Chavez was easily the most popular leader ever known in our country, but he presided over the erosion of democracy. He stacked the courts with his cronies, extended his term in office, and rigged elections by limiting media coverage for the opposition, while he held forth on television for hours on end. We're sure there was a lot of bad things about Hugo Chavez, but uh, frankly, this correspondent is still laughing about the fact that he appeared at the UN in 2006 after President George W. Bush announced to the assembled dignitaries from around the world that the devil was just here. I can still smell the sulfur. Now, there's talk of embalming Chavez like Lenin, Stalin, Ho Chi Minh, Mao Zedong, Kim Il-sung, and Kim Jong-il. Which I guess, if nothing else, does point to the fact that Chavez must have really been a communist. Because who else does that to their leaders but communists? <laughs> Mr. Willen does point out correctly the Egyptians. Yeah, that's true. But not in the last century. You want to make passing mention of the passing of Alan Kalhamer. Mr. Kalhamer was, according to his obituaries, a bit of a dilettante who, during his late 30s, got a steady job as a postman, which allowed him to pursue hobbies and his art. We're talking about him because he was once a history student at Harvard in the 1950s and developed a board game which this correspondent became quite fond of. The game is Diplomacy. Released in 1959, it developed a legion of fans, including President John F. Kennedy, Henry Kissinger, and Walter Cronkite. Diplomacy, the board game, is very much like Diplomacy, the real thing, in that you have to forge and break alliances at key times. And knowing who to trust among your partners and when to not trust them is very much part of the game. Well, in medical school, I introduced this game to my classmates, and I must say, it did become something of a sensation. On a, on a couple of occasions, we laid the board game out in uh, our student union and proceeded to uh, play for days. I should mention that to win the game, you're eventually going to have to screw somebody that is your ally. Uh, that aspect of the game did lead to some ill feelings, but I do think in the end, all of my classmates forgave me for introducing the game to them. And I must say, I remember those marathon games we had with a great deal of affection. And I would add as an addendum, not once did I prevail in the game. <laughs> like most of the participants, I got outmaneuvered by my more wily classmates. One of whom I believe is a local orthopedic surgeon, but shall remain nameless. All right, let's close with a lightning round of science. Current edition of New Scientist has an article titled Domino Effect Tips Climate Over Edge, noting the instability of Arctic sea ice could be just the first in a cascade of tipping points, which I guess, in terms of science reporting, has come a long way since 2004. But the question is, what are we doing about it? Speaking of what are we doing about it, we're really pleased to note that the, uh, the twin collisions of asteroids on the planet Earth last February 15th have gotten a lot of people's attention. No, we haven't gotten any far with bringing anybody from the B612 Society on this program. We're going to keep working on it because they are uh, leaders of the pack and doing the right thing, which is to say, A, finding all the asteroids that might smack into the Earth and cause harm, and then B, 
doing something about diverting the ones that can be diverted. Of course, to quote from The Economist, February 23rd piece, hard-nosed economists might wonder whether spending money on asteroid research, either for detection or deflection, is really worth it. After all, for all their drama, asteroid strikes are rare, and there are plenty of other threats to worry about. Adding, but the relative lack of information makes the true risk difficult to calculate. An asteroid strike is an event with low probability, but high death toll when it does happen. I love this part. Our best guess is you can expect maybe 100 people a year to die from asteroid strikes. Of course, that really means you might see 100,000 deaths every 1,000 years, or 100 million deaths every million years. <laughs> yes, that's true. Chris, this is the part I like. The idea of spending money for uh, asteroid research is being called dubious, and yet we spent hundreds of billions of dollars for a bogus system to protect us from Russian and other missile attacks that doesn't work. It is, of course, possible to prevent Russian missile attacks before they start, which is a much better idea, being that in this case, an ounce of prevention is worth a lot more than a pound of cure. We just hope that a lot of those funds that were spent on this strategic defense initiative, Star Wars plan, started by Ronald Reagan back in 1983 after being bamboozled by Edward Teller, we hope a lot of that research may be applicable to this area of fending off asteroids. We certainly hope so. And you may have seen the headlines about the comet that's grazing uh, the sun currently. Although it has been very bright, it's very close to the sun, making observations problematic, but we still hope you'll give it a go, dear listener. And speaking of asteroids smacking into the Earth and comets whizzing by the sun, there's clear evidence that a comet called ISON will come within 10 million kilometers of Mars in September. Current calculations say there's a 1 in 700 chance it will hit Mars. This is a large object, and uh, should it strike the red planet, there will be possibly a scientific bonanza of data coming back to us from that unique event. I, I kind of hope it does smack into Mars. The best current evidence is that uh, the two Rovers on Mars will not be in the bullseye zone and might be able to deliver us some pretty interesting science. The orbiters around Mars are certain to, so, uh, boy, interesting, uh, interesting possible development. This, this comet is 8 kilometers across and is coming in at 56 kilometers a second, which is pretty hot, about three times the speed of that uh, object that smacked into Siberia. It's estimated it would produce a blast equivalent to 60 million megatons, a million times the yield of the largest hydrogen bomb ever blown off. It's noted that if the impact takes place in the side of Mars visible from the Earth, observers may see the planet flare up like a flash gun. Well, you can bet we'll continue to follow that one. That's been our story of the day today. We're going to follow this story, and we're going to follow that story, but you know we do. And I got to admit it, we love Marilyn Vos Savant, at least a lot of her columns. Someone asked last Sunday, how do they decide which way is north on a planet? And Marilyn Vos notes that the convention is a system called right-hand angular coordinates. To envision it, hold out your right arm and give yourself a thumbs up. Your fingers are curled with the tips headed rightward. This represents the direction of a planet's rotation on its axis. By this convention, it can be seen that seven of the eight planets in our solar system have a north pole roughly corresponding to our own. There is one exception. The planet Uranus was apparently impacted by some large object in the distant past, and uh, its 
North Pole is considered to be more than a right angle off of uh, the rest of the planets. It's tilted over its side 98 degrees. And since Uranus is laying over on its side, its respective hemispheres have seasons that are basically decades long. This represents kind of a wild exaggeration of our own North Pole and South Pole, which pretty much gets a six-month day and a six-month night. If you were hovering above one of the poles in Uranus, those figures would be more like 40 years. And uh, speaking of Mars, as we were a moment ago, there's a much ballyhooed proposal by Dennis Tito, the first space tourist to visit the International Space Station, to send a couple on an orbital trajectory that will take them past Mars. They're just going to basically whiz past Mars and have a look while they're close by. This is a much less technically ambitious uh, mission than to try and land on the surface of Mars. But uh, to be cooped up in a spacecraft for 501 days is causing Dennis Tito to call for a couple to make this trip. This is based on the supposition that anything other than a loving couple is liable to kill each other on such a long mission. Personally, I'm betting that no matter how loving a couple you select, they're going to be ready to kill each other after 501 days cooped up in the same small space. Mr. McMillan is convinced this will lead to the first space divorce. And we were bagging on Discover Magazine a while back, noting that, uh, you know, they're, they're reporting is spotty. And I got to say, I got taken in by the article about the perils of going to Pluto. There was a subtitle to the headline saying, a seemingly simple trip to the world at the edge of the solar system is looking more like a voyage into the perfect meteor storm. Well, I read the piece, and it's mostly a blast of cold air. The reasoning is they've now found that Pluto has five moons orbiting it. Since that means there's probably been collisions in the past, there may be more dust near the planet, and of course, hitting a speck of dust could take out the New Horizons space probe, which is destined to arrive in the vicinity of Pluto in 2015. That's only two years away now. And we do want to offer editorial opinion that naming one of the tiny, newly discovered moons around Pluto, Vulcan, is just wrong. I know you Star Trek fans want to see something in the solar system named Vulcan, but Vulcan was a god associated with heat and forging. You can't name an ice ball after Vulcan. I'm sorry. We're against it. All right, we got time for one item. And it will not be the discovery of the closest stars to the Earth since 1916, which is a pair of brown dwarfs, just a little bit further than Barnard's star, six light years away. We're going to save that one. And instead, close with the fact that a mineral found in a shipwreck apparently appears to be the legendary Viking sunstone. Sunstones were reputed to have been used by Viking sailors in the days before the magnetic compasses. They would look at the sky through one, it was said, and it would reveal the sun's direction even on a cloudy day or when the sun was below the horizon. A lot of people have suspected that sunstones were real and were actually crystals of Iceland spar, a form of calcite that polarizes light and therefore reacts to polarized light. Turns out light from the sun is polarized, and as was discovered just a couple years back, looking through a piece of Iceland spar reveals the direction of polarization and thus the direction of the sun to within 5 degrees. In fact, recent studies are with fresh Iceland spar, it's more accurate to within 1 degree. A big piece of Icelandic spar was uh, salvaged from an English Channel wreck, which went down in November of 1592. The old piece of Icelandic spar, which is 
now optically imperfect due to its submersion, was discovered within a meter of a pair of navigational dividers of the sort used to measure distances on charts. This is probably not a Viking ship, but was probably something that was borrowing the technology of the Vikings. We find this story entirely credible, and we'll report more on it uh, hopefully in the weeks to come. And unfortunately, we are out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to science writer Sharon Begley. We recommend that you check out her piece in the Saturday Evening Post, Why We Need Germs. And we sure hope she'll pay us a visit on the program in the future. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time. They say the sea turns so deep.